Well, if you heard last week's message, whether you uh, joined us online or whether you're here in person, uh, maybe you had to catch up uh, via the YouTube video later in the week, those first two verses that uh, Liz read for us should sound rather familiar. We talked last week about how this life in Christ is really living the life where we're rooted in Christ, we're built up in Christ, we're strengthened and established in the faith, and we're then ultimately overflowing with thankfulness. The point that Paul is making in these verses here is really that life apart from Christ. So when you are not in Christ, you are apart from Christ, and that life apart from Christ is actually a rather empty life. My first year of seminary, um, I had two friends that were killed in separate vehicle, motor vehicle accidents six weeks apart. And uh, in, in one case, um, it wasn't just the loss of these friends that impacted me. It was really what I would say was kind of the tone of the funerals themselves, the two services. And in Mike's case, Mike was a friend of mine. We grew up in Sunday school together. We got into trouble together. We hung out most uh, Sunday afternoons together. We'd go to church in the evening or with our families. We'd go over to one another's houses with all of our families after church in the evening. We just spent a lot of time on Sundays together, but we lived uh, quite a distance apart, so we didn't see each other much during the week. And, and there was a point in Mike's life where it just kind of, you know, you could tell that he really wasn't following Jesus. There was no evidence in his life that, that, um, that Jesus was a priority in, in his life. And um, I remember when uh, word came that he was in hospital, he was on life support, um, I was there, I was there with the family. And uh, I remember just the gut-wrenching decision that they had to make to then remove uh, Mike from life support, and he passed away soon after. And um, I think what, what really stood out to me is kind of the tone of his funeral, because there was really kind of this unassurance. There was really no hope. And it was punctuated, if you can imagine this, by his grieving father standing at the reception kind of after in tears, sobbing and weeping, saying, this would be much easier if I knew where Michael was today. Can you imagine as a parent just having that doubt and not having that assurance? Six weeks later, another friend passed away and here was somebody, Ron, loved Jesus. It was evident that he loved Jesus. He told people about Jesus. He lived for Jesus. It was, it was so evident. And so his service was, was just marked by a profound joy and a settled peace in the midst of the grief and the sadness that comes with the loss of a loved one. But if you ever go to a funeral and the person who has passed away didn't have a relationship with Jesus... It sometimes feels like there's like layers of sadness upon layers of sadness. Because there's the sadness of the fact that this person has passed away, but there's also this sadness in the fact that, that there is no hope. And that's why when you go to a service of a believer in Jesus Christ, there's this overwhelming sense of hope and joy and peace that comes because the Bible says that we do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. And so there's really a contrast that can be drawn that either we have hope or we don't have hope. 
When hope is absent, life often seems meaningless and empty. And if you just stop and just think about life, um, it, 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 it just, you, you need something more to make sense of it, right? We're, we're born, we're raised, we go to school, we go to school for 12 years. Then we think about what we're going to do after high school. We're either going to, you know, maybe go on to university or maybe we're going to uh, start a, a business or we're going to um, go to trade school. We're going to do something and then we maybe do that for the rest of our lives. And maybe uh, God brings a significant other into our lives. We get married and maybe we have children and we raise those children and then someday our heart stops beating and it's all over. And if that's all it is, I mean, there can be some really good things in that. But if that's all it is, if there's no deep meaning in life, if there's no sense of eternal life, what do we then have? And so I think in the heart of every person, there is this longing or this sense that there is something more. And maybe you're here today, and just in describing the contrast between having hope and no hope, maybe there is a bit of feeling of emptiness in your own life today. And I really hope that what I have to share today will cause you not only to ponder these truths, but to then maybe respond in some way as well. And we come in our studies in Colossians this morning to a section where Paul, first of all, he issues a warning before so clearly laying out all that Christ has done, that he basically says that Christ is the fullness that fills the emptiness. And we're going to see why. But first, this warning. So the Apostle Paul had a teaching ministry. He established churches, and then he taught churches in the faith. He taught them about what it meant to follow Jesus. But he also had kind of a warning ministry where uh, he regularly told his readers what to watch out for, what to look out for, to be on their guard. He instructed them many times in what to avoid. And that's what he does here. In verse 8, if you're following along in your Bibles, he says this, See to it that no one takes you captive. No one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And this translation is from New International Version, and it's almost a little soft, you know, kind of this see to it that no one takes you captive. Other translations say, be careful or beware, take note of this. Now remember that Paul has just told them in verses 6 and 7 that were read that we looked at last week that, that this is what life in Christ is all about. And now he warns them. <clears throat> and as much as we want to be rooted and, and strengthened and built up and established in the faith, it's easy for us to get sidetracked. That in our desire to follow Jesus, we're oftentimes tempted to sometimes pull away from Jesus. There's a hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And I think we might, if we're honest with ourselves, we say, you know what? That's partly true in my life sometimes as well. And remember that Paul is writing here in response to some who were teaching that Jesus wasn't enough, that somehow there was, there was more available to them and they were missing out, that there was this fuller experience that they could have, these secret mysteries that were only known to a few, you know, a few that had that secret code. And Paul is saying, listen, don't fall for that. 
And the picture here, this, this taken captive, it can be translated carry off. And the image that comes to mind for me is like a bunch of thugs jumping out of an unmarked van, throwing a black hood over your head, and throwing you into the back of the van and taking you off or carrying you off, taking you captive, holding you hostage. It's a graphic picture. But Paul is warning them that this is, in fact, a serious threat. And they needed to be careful, he says, not to be taken captive in this way by hollow and deceptive philosophy. In other words, be careful that you aren't taken captive and enslaved or captured by false teaching. Because ultimately, that's what false teaching is. It, it usually sounds attractive. It, it sounds like it might really, you know, fill your life. You might experience new freedoms. But Paul warns them to watch out if they actually value their freedom. And he uses these words like hollow and deceptive. He's talking about this emptiness. And it's fake. It might look and sound good, but there's, there's really no substance to it. Uh, to illustrate, I was thinking, this is like the difference between what's known as a, a solid core door and a hollow core door. All the doors in the church here are solid wood. They're solid core doors. And if you tried to put your foot through it, you'd probably break your foot. It's just solid. Compare that to the doors that we have most in our homes. They're a hollow corridor. There's just kind of a, a, a covering on either side. There's a loose frame around it. There's really nothing but air in between it. Don't try this at home. But if you want to, you could probably just put your foot right through it. Because what? It's hollow. It's empty. And Paul says, don't get taken captive by philosophy that's hollow, that's empty. And so Paul issues this warning be careful. Do not get taken in by things that sound right, that look good, but aren't. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Stay focused on Him. He's the real deal. And he goes on then to have them think about what they already have in Christ. He just hammers this home. Listen, you don't need more than Christ. Christ is everything. And let me tell you why. And so I've just organized my thoughts around these three words today. Fullness, fellowship, and freedom. Fullness, fellowship, and freedom. So first of all, fullness. It's, it's, as Paul is writing, you get this sense that he can't even imagine that they would want to look anywhere else other than to Christ to fill the emptiness in their lives. He says, listen, life is made complete when we experience all that Jesus has for us. And verse 9 is really one of these wow verses. Listen to this. For in Christ, okay? Again, this, we've, we've seen this phrase over and over and over. When we are in Christ, when we're in relationship with Him, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, this verse alone answers many false teachings even today because it's a clear statement that Jesus was and Jesus is God. That he wasn't just a good man, he wasn't just a good teacher, but he was God. And anyone seeing Jesus saw the Father, because Jesus is God in the flesh, God in this bodily form. 
And so what we can say about Jesus is that he was fully divine because all of the fullness of the deity was living in him. And so Jesus, we say, is fully God and fully man. It's really the miracle of what theologians call the incarnation. And and, and John in his uh, opening chapter of his gospel, he, he makes it clear in talking about Jesus. And he makes this phrase, he says, you know, he came and he made his dwelling among us. His dwelling among us. He tabernacled among us. So just think about it, even as we head into Advent, it's just a wonderful uh, opportunity for us to, to reframe our thinking on this again and to say, you know what, Christmas again is about God coming to us, being accessible to us, to be at home with us. He came and made His dwelling among us. And so we call Him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That's going to be our focus, obviously, through, through Advent when we come to it next week and think about what do we then have in Christ because He is with us, but hope and peace and joy and love. Those Advent themes, it's a wonderful time. So Paul, again, he's just saying that all that we can or need to know about God has been made known in Christ And Jesus is now ascended into heaven. He's seated at God's right hand. He's reigning on this throne of grace. And guess what? We can still approach him with confidence, boldly, because in all of his fullness, he's still accessible to us. He's not some other world. He's not removed from us. Remember, we are in Christ. He is in us. He is with us. And so Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, puts it this way. He says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Friends, in an instant, you turn your attention to God, and we come with anything. We come boldly. We come with confidence. We come with freedom. Hebrews, uh, the writer there in chapter 4, verse 16, he's talking about Jesus being this high priest, and he says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Friends, the fullness of Christ is available to us in an instant. But wait, it gets even better because he says at the rest of verse 10, if you follow along now, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. In Christ, not only is Christ full of the deity, that, that in Christ, we ourselves have been brought to fullness. That believers in Jesus Christ have been also been filled. They're complete in Christ. And Paul may have been emphasizing this fullness using this word because there may have been some that were suggesting that the Colossian Christians, they only had a part. They didn't have all of Jesus. And he's kind of going on, no, 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 listen. There's fullness, and it's in Christ that you've been brought to this fullness. And so he comes at it hard. You have been brought to fullness. And this isn't something in the future. This is now because the past tense, you have been brought to it. 
Friends, I know that might be a little heady, but think about it. It's absolutely incredible because Jesus, full of God, fills us. And he gives us everything that we need. And so what do you need right now? Do you need wisdom? You got it. Do you need strength? He'll provide it. You need courage? He's got you. Whatever you need is available to him in Christ. And to pull a word from verse 6, to receive Christ then is to be filled with Christ, and then fullness of life is found in Christ. Blaise Pascal, he was writing about this, and he's describing this longing that humanity has for, for completeness, for satisfaction. And, and some interpreted his, his, um, his writings to refer to this God-shaped vacuum. And that in his writings, he basically implied that, that, that each person has this God-shaped vacuum, this hole in their heart, that each man, he says, cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And so he says that we all have within us this emptiness. And we spend so much of our time and our energy trying to fill it. And so we look to success or to achievement or to money or to possessions or to relationships or activities that then become addictive because we have this desire and longing that is so strong. And what do we discover? At the end of the day, we still feel empty. Augustine, in his Confessions, he writes this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Does this maybe describe you today a little bit? Your heart is restless. There's this stirring in you today that even as I'm talking, you're just like, I think I get it. I think that I've been looking to fill this void in my life in all of the wrong places. You see, throughout Colossians, we're discovering that Paul's message is not somehow Jesus and me. It's Jesus in me. Jesus with me. And because the fullness of the deity lives in him, in Christ, we then have been brought to fullness. Because Jesus is the fullness that fills the emptiness. Well, another word as we carry on in verses 11 and 12 is just fellowship or, or you know, I needed an F word. So, um, and, and there were several commentators that actually were using some of these same words. So these aren't unique words uh, in any way. But really speaking to this relationship. And Paul here in verses 11 and 12, he talks about how they can have a relationship with Christ. And he uses uh, three words, in fact, all of which are in the past tense. He says they were circumcised, were buried, and were raised. And so what does this mean? Well, if you look at verse 11, he says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And Paul here, he's talking about the circumcision. And so uh, this too may have been Paul speaking to one of those theological challenges in the church. It was maybe part of the mix of some of the ideas that were causing some confusion in this church. 
And it certainly had some Jewish roots to it. And so it's not surprising because circumcision was a surgical act in obedience to the Old Testament law. It was a sign of the Old Testament covenant, a sign of devotion and dedication to God. And it was established and mandated by God for entrance into the covenant community of his people. And Paul says here, in contrast to that, he says, not just a little part of your flesh is being cut off. He says, Christ did away with your entire flesh. You have been saved completely. And Paul here is talking about a a spiritual circumcision, an inner circumcision of the heart that is done by Christ alone. It's an internal thing. And that's why he says, no human hands. This was done not by human hands hands. And so, he's saying that our old self, this self-centered, sinful nature that has this propensity towards evil, he says, that is being cut off. Christ did away with your entire flesh. And we're a new creation. We now have a Christ-centered nature. Our sins have been forgiven. And yes, of course, we can still sin, but it's that power of sin that has been broken as we surrender to Christ and we walk in the power of the Spirit. And so he goes on in verse 12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And baptism, again here now, relates to Christ's death and burial. And it symbolizes for the Christian union with Christ in death and ultimately separation from the former way of life. Baptism, uh, in so many ways, is a death and resurrection experience. And in the early church, baptism was an outward sign of surrender to Christ. And it was about being raised up to new life in Christ. And when we, have a, when we do baptism, we have in the ground here, we have a tank that's set in here and it's filled with water. And when the water is in there, it's a beautiful picture ultimately of dying to our old self when we're going down into the water and we're buried underneath the water as it were. And then we're raised to new life in Christ, new life in the Spirit. And so the question simply is, is are you in Christ today? And if you are, then you know all about this relationship with Christ, that you have fellowship with Christ. And you can walk with Jesus through every day of your life. And and the first thing you do in the morning is you thank Him for a good night's sleep and that you have breath and life to go on another day. You ask Him for wisdom and uh, for the challenges of the day. And when you lay your head at night on the bed again, you can thank Jesus for all of how He had walked with you throughout the day. Friends, I can't, and what's I think beautiful in this is that for many of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what it is like to have this authentic relationship with Jesus where you walk with Him. And you know that you have joy and you know that you can get up in the morning and you can sing like we sang this morning, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see, all that I've needed, you have provided And we can acknowledge with praise and thanksgiving all that he's done. And so a question that follows is then, ultimately, have you been baptized? Because baptism is is a sign. It's a symbol. It's almost like 
uh, it doesn't save you in any way, but it, it demonstrates that you're desiring to be in Christ and to follow Christ. And so we have fellowship with Christ. And lastly, we have freedom in Christ. Oh man, are you ready for this? I really thought um, about that I should just start and end with this, um, but I wanted to cover some of those verses that I missed last week. Because in these last three verses, verses 13 to 15, Paul ultimately talks about the freedom that we have in Christ, all because of the forgiveness of sins. Why is this important? He says, first of all, in verse 13, he says, when you were dead in your sins. Just think about that. When you were dead in your sins. Again, past tense. The situation was grim. They were separated from God. They had no hope, no meaning, no life. They were dead. And guess what? Dead people don't do much. But then God stepped in. Literally. And he stepped down into this world. He took on flesh. He lived among us. He lived, he died, he was buried, and then he was raised again by the power of God. And there's a little phrase there in verse 13 that just jumps off the page at me. He says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He made you alive with Christ. There it is again, the same theme that we just talked about, baptism, coming to life in Christ raised with Christ. This great act of God can only be described by language of death and resurrection. And friends, I don't think it gets much more dramatic than that, does it? That Paul is making this argument that God cannot do anything greater than he already has done for them in Christ. And so he goes on to describe what God has already done with them through the death of Christ. And all of the descriptions of the change that Jesus brings in our life that Paul uses, he talks about from death to life, from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom. These are incredible changes that take place in our lives when we are in Christ. And all of that is right here in these verses. And he says it comes about not because of what you've done. It comes about because of what God has done. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. That first of all, He forgave us all our sins. He freed us from slavery to our sins. And I believe that forgiveness is the longing of every heart. Because instinctively we know that we've, we've done wrong. And we feel the guilt of that. And when we're forgiven, that, that, that guilt is released. And Paul is saying that, listen, this has happened. You've been freed. You've been freed from sin. That's why he says in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No guilt. You've been set free because you've had your sins forgiven. Secondly, he canceled the charge of legal indebtedness. He canceled the charge of legal indebtedness. What is he saying there? The wording that he's using, he's talking about like a bond or a certificate of indebtedness, an IOU. It's probably the best way of thinking about it. Without Christ, right, we're bound to keep God's law. We're bound to satisfy his rightful demands, 
but we know we're all lawbreakers, and so every time we, we, we sin, we just keep adding to the tab, and our IOU continues to grow. And so what happens? Ultimately, we have a debt we cannot pay, right? This, this bond, this IOU is held against us. It's legal and it's inescapable. But Christ has come. And He's come and He's canceled the charge. Another uh, word picture used here is that he, he blotted it out. He wiped it away. He totally and completely paid off your debt once and for all that absolutely nothing remains against us because he canceled the charge, the entire charge of legal indebtedness. And all of the legal demands are met and we go free without any debt. You see, at one time, our debt condemned us. But he has taken it away, says in verse 14. It no longer has any claim against us. It's nailed to the cross, he says. And, and, and this is an important picture to, to think about. Because what he's saying is, is that it was, it was a common practice to write a written accusation about every condemned criminal. It would list the person's crimes. And it would be posted for everyone to see. And the reason this was there was that it would really prove justification for the punishment that this person was about to receive. He was going to die on a cross. And so there's the, there's the sign. This is what he did. Because of this, he's being punished like this. So it was a sign to everyone and really a warning to everyone. And in John 19, you can read this for yourself, verses 19 through 22. What do we know about what Pilate did when he had an accusation against Jesus? And in that context, they were actually mocking Jesus. So they put up a sign, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So that everybody walking by, whether they spoke, and they, they wrote it in three languages, in, in, um, in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Why? So that anybody coming by that spoke those three languages saw the, the charges that were set up against Jesus. The chief priests even protested to Pilate. He says, don't, don't just say that he's the king of the Jews. You need to tell him. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. Don't give him any credit. You see, that was the charge against Jesus that was nailed to the cross. And when you have that picture in mind, you understand what Paul is saying here, is that Jesus then took the charges that IOU that we had, the charges that were against us. And he didn't overlook them or he didn't ignore them. He canceled them by nailing it to the cross. Why? Because he was nailed to the cross. You see, before Christ comes into our lives, we're in deep trouble. Our sins not only separated us from God, but they're counted against us. They, he says, stood against us and condemned us. And so again, we had this legal debt, this IOU. We had a price to pay because this is what the law demanded. But Jesus nailed it to the cross. And he took upon himself our debt. The accusations leveled against us, he took them on for us. And that's why we sometimes sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. What? He washes white as snow. What? He blots it away. He takes it away. 
once and for all. And lastly, he disarmed the powers and authorities. He disarmed the powers and authorities. You see, in, this, uh, in, in writing this, Paul raises for us an awareness of the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. Because to be in relationship with Christ, to know Jesus, is to be fully aware of the powers of the evil one. Just very simply, why do you think it's hard to pray? Because to pray, you go up against the forces of evil. That's where you meet strong opposition. And to be in Christ, uh, or to be in relationship with Christ, you are actually entering into a battle. And you have an enemy that has a very clear mission, and that is to steal, kill, and destroy. And he'll do everything that he can in order to distract, to discourage, to sidetrack. Friends, can I just tell you, and, and I don't say this, I, I thought about this this morning, and should I say this? But preaching is hard. And preaching, is, and I say that not in the way, in any way to talk about, you know, for self-pity and, oh, look at us, this is a hard thing to do. And it's not because you stand up in pub, front of public, uh, in, you know, and you hope that you have uh, actually something to say, but really because we're on the front lines of a spiritual battle when we do this. Every single week, it doesn't matter who is up here. And the enemy right now, when it comes to the preaching of the Word, he doesn't want you to hear anything, to do anything, to change anything, to commit to anything, so he'll use anything to distract you. And you know how hard it is just to focus and to track and to follow along with the message like that. And, you know, even yesterday, Tina and I were talking, it's just like, you know, it's crazy how every week, it doesn't seem to matter who's preaching, something always happens. Like even just three weeks ago, or three Sundays ago, almost just two weeks ago, Pastor Adam was preaching. What you didn't know is that like on Friday and Saturday, their youngest daughter, Hallie, was in ER because she had a, a, a temperature that had spiked danger, to like dangerously high. They're concerned as parents. Adam can't be there. Jolene's in ER with, with Hallie. We're on the phone. We're texting. Should I be ready to step in and preach? And I'm like, well, you've already done 90% of the work, and we're kind of going back and forth like this. The day before, he's supposed to stand in front of you and deliver this word. Why didn't that happen on the week that I'm preaching? Last week, last Friday, I called my eye doctor just to make what I thought would be a, a routine appointment for some, an annual exam, and, and then I tell him that I'm, I'm, I'm having a few issues, and there's just sort of this pause, and she goes, um, you need to be seen right away. And within an hour, I was in an ophthalmologist's office diagnosing what was happening with my eye, and that there could potentially be some really serious consequences to it. And again, that happened. <laughs> I text Adam and go, it's my turn. <laughs> Why does it always happen on Friday? And why does it happen to us who's preaching? Because we have an enemy. And the point is that we don't just stick our heads in the sand and pretend that this battle doesn't exist. And it happens in your life too. I'm sure you have many stories to tell. But at the same time, we can't make too much of this battle either because it's a battle that's been won. Because in, look how Paul writes in verse 15. I love that these are powerful lines. Follow with me if you've got your Bible open. He says, he disarmed the powers and authorities. 
you get what he's saying there? He disarmed them. He actually took away their weapons. Without weapons, they're powerless. He goes on, he says, he made a public spectacle of them. It was like Jesus taunted them. He says, you know, go ahead, kill me. I'm going to rise again. And then he did. He triumphed over them by the cross. And one commentator put it this way. I love this. He said, he turns the cross into a chariot of victory. What a great image. He turns the cross into the chariot of victory. And the image that Paul is describing here is, is one of a, a Roman triumphal procession, okay? The generals are returning victorious from the battle. And guess what they're doing? They're parading the prisoners of war who've been disarmed, they've been silenced, they've been shamed, they've been exposed. And the message to those that were looking on was, listen, we won. You've got nothing to fear. The enemy has been defeated. And in the case of Christ... That enemy was death and the powers of evil, or as one commentator described them, terrorists from hell. It's a graphic picture, isn't it? But it's so true. And don't you feel this battle at times? The enemy comes to you and he tries to deceive you, to distract you, throws to temp- temptation at you. And the enemy comes and he messes with your heart and your mind, and you begin to doubt and you begin to wonder. See, when that happens, friends, remember this picture in verse 15. Remember verse 10 that he is the head over every power and authority, that Jesus is victorious, and because we are in Christ, we are victorious. He disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, and he triumphed over them on the cross. 1 John 4, 4, the one who is what in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And here in Colossians, Paul is reminding them, you have freedom, friends, true spiritual freedom. You've been liberated. You are victorious because of what Jesus has done. So let me just give you three things in terms of a response real quick. One, Have you received Christ as Lord? Have you ever said yes to Jesus? I talked about this earlier. Maybe there's just this stirring in your heart. You can't make sense of it. You're not even sure why you're here this morning. Maybe somebody dragged you along. Maybe you just flipped through YouTube and suddenly this thing is on and you're like, who is this guy? I don't really care. But all of a sudden you're like, I can't stop listening because there's something being drawn. And I know that there's this emptiness in my life and I have a longing for something more. And that more is found in the person of Jesus. He is the fullness that can fill your emptiness because it's in Him that we have forgiveness of sins. We have this fullness and we have freedom. So are you in Christ today? If you're not, we would love to talk to you, pray with you, and just walk you through that. Maybe answer some questions. And it's okay. Okay, to, to, to ask questions about that. Like, what does that mean? But don't walk away from here today with those questions at least. You know, don't walk away with them unanswered. Secondly, if you've been baptized, I've said this here before to you. As your pastor, I love you. You know that. But I want to say this loud and clear and boldly, and sometimes I get in trouble when I say this, but I believe it with all my heart. That if you are in Christ, as we've been talking about for weeks, and especially these last two weeks, if you are in Christ, 
and you have not been baptized, then you are flat out walking in disobedience. Because to say that you're a follower of Jesus and then not do one of the most basic things that Jesus did, you're missing out on that. And you need to say yes to Jesus, and then you should be baptized. And thirdly, it follows from being baptized. Are you following him? And I suspect that's maybe where many of us find ourselves this morning. And we should just ask ourselves, are we walking with Jesus in the way of Jesus? Don't make it more complicated. Don't look for experiences. Just understand clear, simple, straightforward, follow Jesus. It's not always easy, but to be in Christ ultimately is to be complete in Christ. And so Paul says to us today, you have been brought to fullness, to be in relationship with Jesus, experiencing fellowship with him, and to be able to walk then in freedom and victory. Friends, this is great news. This is fantastic news. Because in Christ, we have everything. We have already received all that we can receive. We don't need to chase after more. We already have it all. Fullness in Christ, fellowship with Christ, freedom through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's heart for the church at Colossae. And he saw how they were being distracted, that they were being tempted to to think that there was something more, that there was some secret code that they needed to know to be in relationship with you. Father, you just make it so clear that we just say yes to Jesus. We receive Jesus and we are in him. And the moment that we are in him, we're rooted, we're strengthened, we're established. And then we spend the rest of our lives continuing in that journey of growing those deep roots, finding our, our nourishment in our relationship with you. But Lord, we know that we can take our eyes off you, and so this warning is important for us. To be careful, to not be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies when people come along and offer us something more. We say, you know what? Jesus is enough. And Jesus paid it all. Jesus. What a beautiful name. What a powerful name. What a wonderful name. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.